0: Okay, everyone, let's be honest here. Whether you are living abroad or at home, having a financial plan is vital to charting your financial future. I know that some of us really don't like talking about money because it can be overwhelming, which is why you may want to consider speaking with the professionals at Smith Brewer Advisors. From retirement to investment management and estate and tax planning, an experienced financial advisor at Smith Brewer Advisors will help you create a plan to meet your financial goals. And what's awesome? They empower their clients to make the right decisions for their individual situation. To learn more about working with a fiduciary financial advisor, visit smithbreweradvisors.com. Proud sponsors of the Global Chatter podcast. Smith Brewer Advisors LLC is a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Dr. Nafisa Allen is a busy lady. She's a multilingual author, independent researcher, content strategist and contributing writer for a couple of publications. She's also a wife, a mom, and oh yeah, a U.S. diplomat who is currently on assignment in South America. So to say she's busy might be a big understatement. Nafisa has over 15 years of experience working in government communications on four different continents. She has worked with funders, founders, and businesses to offer messaging and brand marketing strategies that center audience identity, moral imperatives, and executive transparency. And if that's not enough, she has used her writing skills to create a multilingual children's book that was influenced by her experience parenting her young third culture children. In this episode, Nafisa shares her story of growing up in New Jersey and connects the dots of how her natural curiosity has defined both her professional and personal choices. You'll hear why she created the Black History Bookshelf, which focuses on Black global history. And she also impacts how she and her husband navigate cross-cultural dynamics within their own family structure. So I'm glad you get to hear Nafisa, because she is truly a gifted communicator. She has this amazing way of threading her own story within the greater conversations of Black migrations, cultures, and languages. Welcome to the Global Chatter. All right. So you are all listening to the latest episode of the Global Chatter. And based from the introduction that you've just heard, you know who my guest is. She's smiling. We're both up early this morning. All of you know these right. These episodes get recorded at the craziest times. And so and so we both happen to be in the same time zone, but nowhere in the same country. So that's that part's funny. So Aysa, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm okay. It's been it's been a week, but I'm really happy to start my day with you. So doing all
0: right. Yeah, no, I'm glad you're here because you know we were talking offline and you mentioned you had a four-year-old and a two-year-old and I'm just Dude. amazed that you're <laughs> like that oh my gosh you're yeah and it's quiet <laughs> yeah well they're
1: sleeping so I had to like, like lock my office door um, before we started because they would
0: definitely come in and be like
1: <laughs> mama who are you talking
0: to <laughs> so. right and, that, and I was like that's why we're doing it this early <laughs> yes yes it is so- absolutely Here's, you know, for people who listen to this podcast, they know that this is probably the launching question of everything because we talk about black and brown mo- mobility, international mobility. So I like for folks to know, get context of who we're listening to. So where did you grow up? Clearly an American, but yeah. like, where did you yeah, grow up? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So I'm originally from Newark, New Jersey, um, which has a really complex history for anybody who knows the town. And My family's African American from the South, so they, you know, came up during the Great Migration, and are from, you know, South Carolina and Florida and Alabama, and um, yeah, the I guess the international part of me either was born into me or, you know, honed in there because Newark is a really interesting city. It's um, it used to be really, uh, I would say, diverse but not segregated, and now it is still diverse but. Relatively segregated, Um, and a lot of that happened in sort of the fifties and sixties, and um, after the Newark riots, people, you know, there was a lot of white flight, and people who used to live on part of town that I'm from, um, white folks left. You know, they left to either um, a different side of town or to other towns, and so there's kind of this this divide around uh, Penn Station. If you've ever been there, you go you go one way, and it's pretty black go another way and it's it's portuguese and brazilian and spanish and puerto rican and very different and not that you can't find people from different cultures on either side but it's more densely those populations and i think i had just always sort of grown up thinking you know there's a black side of town and then there's everybody else and everybody else Mm. um is not necessarily white american in the ways that you know most people think you know uh, of white Americans, they're they're like white immigrants, right? So they speak other languages. On that side of town, everybody speaks. I don't even think until I was much older, I don't even think anybody said, you know, oh, that's the white side. People said, oh, that's the Portuguese side. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the Spanish side. Um, so I've always associated gotcha. it with languages, right? I've always associated that difference with languages. And as I grew older, I was like, I want to bridge that gap. Like, I want to bridge the language Gap. I want to be able to be on that side of town and have a conversation and not have, you know, oh, the Spanish or the Portuguese is the reason why we can't, you know, converse or talk or I can't help you get what you need or you can't help me get what I need. Um, so that really kind of launched my journey into traveling and being international and just feeling it's like it's really embedded in in sort of who I am and and why I
0: live my life the way I do. So I mean I think that's a great intro because I with with that did you grow up traveling at all and 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 it's funny to say this because just in your description on the other side of the station going right there's all these different cultures right that you, <laughs> that you could interface with but did you grow up traveling either domestically or internationally not really. I
1: mean, I think you know, like most, I call myself, you know, a a great migration grandbaby, right? We we go back to where our families are because that's where travel is easy and cheap and seems safe. And um, so I, you know, would go with my grandparents every summer down to South Carolina and spend, you know, two, three weeks with them. Uh, my first international trip, I think, was like to Niagara Falls with my parents. Um, and I probably was like, I don't know, 12 or 13. And I uh, I don't think we saw anything of Canada, right? Let's just say that, right? If I <laughs> we didn't go farther than the than the than the falls. But I had a neighbor who'd gone to boarding school and I just like loved her. Right. I was like, I just want to be just like her. I want to travel the world. And you know, she's found her way. Mind you, she only went two hours south in New Jersey. That was as far as <laughs> she'd gotten. But you know, she was sort of my role model, and I was like, I want to do just what she's doing. Um. So when I uh, got the opportunity to apply to boarding schools, I I did. I really wanted to go because I felt like that was the beginning of sort of launching me out into the world. And so I got the opportunity to do a study abroad in high school, which is something I think a lot of people don't tend to do. So I did it as my junior year and lived in Spain. And then mm. from there, it was like, oh, you can't you can't tell me nothing, right? You know, I've lived by myself. I turned 16 in this country. I've right. traveled throughout Europe and um just kind of grew. I think I grew up as an adult in that study abroad experience and really unconventional way, like I didn't do it with my parents, right I didn't do it yeah. with my family. I kind of did it on my own and um yeah, I think that I think that style of travel and that style of migration for me has continued uh throughout my life that I really use study abroad and living abroad as a as my mechanism as opposed to shorter travel
0: and so I think you've said two things that are. Very interesting point. So the first one is, and especially for folks who are listening who are not American and who are not Black American, talking about sort of the migration patterns that have happened in this country. And so if you talk to most Black Americans, right, who've been here for generations, (laughs) everyone has a Southern story, right? It doesn't matter where they are in the United States. They can be from Oakland and California. They could be from Chicago. And everybody's got a you know we would go visit if they were traveling a grandparent in the south and so i you know for those who are listening that's really the context of, of part of that i think your story but the other thing is what you just said was you know you, you did you ended up going to boarding school right is that for, right. for my own clarification yeah. mm-hmm. I did. okay first first of all going to boarding school and then and then so we say study abroad and we tend to think of high school students or not high school, college, university students. Right. And I've talked to parents who are freaked out at that level. You went, <laughs> and we don't, oh, we don't yeah. talk as much about, about high school. Right. Like, I mean, I'm talking black, I'm talking specifically black parents. Like I have had black parents freak out when I was in a previous job over and I had to talk them through going to Spain, going, your going baby's going to Europe, gonna even, be right?
1: safe. Your baby's going to be wrong. right.
0: Yeah. But, but as a teenager, like how did your, This is always for my parents who are listening. How how did your parents sort of take you being like, I'm going to Europe for a year? Yeah, well,
1: (laughs) uh, clearly they agreed. But I guess I would say, I mean, I think the biggest shock for them was probably boarding school. But they started this. That's what I always say. My mother started this. So um, Mm -hmm. I went to one of the, you know, like sort of most gifted public schools in Newark for elementary school that school only went up to sixth grade so at mm-hmm. sixth grade I had to transfer to a middle school um this school that I was in was kind of a feeder for they didn't have DEI back then and you can clearly tell because it was like we just need some black kids to pepper in <laughs> with the white kids um good luck feed, you know figure it out
0: as as my friend says the chocolate chip in the milk
1: oh my god <laughs> so much milk so much milk so few <laughs> chocolate chips <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, um, so our school is kind of the feeder for a much more rich, wealthy, elite middle school. Um, and so okay. I got selected and I was like, oh, I just wanted to see if I could get it right. Like I'm, I'm that person. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I want to apply and I will turn you down. I'm not going to be the person to not apply. So let's go see this. Um, and I've always been that way. I think I've always been very ambitious. So it, I, from a very young age. Um, and so I got in and my mom's like, well, you got to go. And I was like, do I got to go? I don't think I got to go. I don't think that's how got go to go. I don't think that's how that works. Like I want to go to the school down the street, um, like my public school where all my other friends are going. And she's like, no, you're not. Um, and so I ended up going to the school for two years. I ha- I mean, I, I'm actually writing a, um, a book about this for adults, um, but I'll share uh, one of the most foundational experiences that really launched me into the migration scholarship was had there where I had a history teacher, you know, extremely racist, but probably not thinking that she is right. Somebody who needs one of these implicit bias classes and bias classes and all these other things creates a project that says, you know, who's your first ancestor to arrive in America? You can imagine that this is a really problematic (laughs) class, right? Like, like, I feel like as a black child, I was like, is she crazy? What, uh, what history, this is not Howard Zinn's history that she's,
0: what? This is not a video podcast, but you, I feel at this point, like, the all of my hands are talking, my hands are doing things. I
1: turned <laughs> into a Jersey girl real quick. Right. Um, it was just horrible. Right. So we, we launched into this, this class and horrible, but a life lesson. So I joined this school with four other black kids from my previous school. And this mm-hmm. conversation had never come up. And I mean in our schools like black black black, right? We we're like Marion Anderson right. and you know right, like right. Ralph Bunch and you know, we could name off all the people, right? Right. And and if you know anything about nork Nork is um is very, very black, right? Extremely black, extremely <laughs> black pride. We are, you know, the epicenter of um of you know black Muslims. I mean, there's just a lot of black pride go to this school and uh, you know, they're, who's the first, who's the first immigrant. All right. So I'm sitting here thinking nobody else thinks this is a problem, right? Okay. All right. Well, let's see how this goes. Um, It's going to be a problem for me, but okay. Um, Go back through my family history, seven generations on both sides. Everybody's still in America. Right. And up until this point, actually, I didn't even know that I had a white relative because my grandmother didn't tell me that, but going through the whole, so yeah, she didn't say anything. Her dad's white, and she never told me. So um, she never, she it. never mentioned it. That's that's a whole other book. But this is me in seventh grade, and um, so I come to this class with all these poster boards of pictures. People I actually know, right? Because you know, if you know anything about the Great Migration, the generations are short. So you know, like your grandmother is, you know, nineteen when she has her first child, and like it just, it's a very short generation. So these are people I grew up with. I know. Um, and then, you know, their parents and grandparents. and, um, and I go into this class, and she's like, But, like, who's your first ancestor though' I was like, so for the history teacher, must we discuss slavery, right? Like, must we begin there? Um, but what was eye opening was that none of the other black kids had this problem. So everybody else had a relative, so they were from, you know, the Caribbean or they were from Africa, mm. and they were like, Oh, yeah, so my grandmother or my, you know, great grandparent. Um, and I was like, shocked to be the, you know, the only person in this class of maybe 30 something, um, who couldn't identify my, you know, origin ancestor in America. And mm-hmm. I felt extremely excluded, not just from sort of, you know, the American narrative, which I think does pride immigrant stories and does want to Mm -hmm. tell you that, you know, your rags to riches story is rags from some foreign country to riches in America. And that's how you see progress. Um, But I also felt very excluded from the Black experience, too, because I think I realized at that moment, um, again, very early, right? Some people are having these conversations in college, right? That like Black Mm -hmm. is not the same. There's lots of definitions for within black and that being african-american within black is not okay right i think i i I got that right it from that lesson that it's okay if you're black as long as you're a black immigrant if you can identify with a black Mm -hmm. immigrant story then okay right you're you're part of the narrative um but if you're from slave heritage we got nothing for you um and that really got me um really thinking about diasporas and identities and sub-identities. And it's very intrinsic in what I do now. So if you read any of my academic work, it's very much about breaking down really large groups that might seem nebulous to everybody else, and you might think you know who they are, but having conversations within the group to go, well, like, are you the same as that type? Um, And really breaking it down along the lines of migration to say, you know, it's not just because you're a different religion, or it's not just because you live in this part of the country now. It's because your migration route was a completely different route. So your Mm -hmm. origins, your Mm -hmm. cultural beliefs, your identity is very different um, than someone who who phenotypically appears to look just like you. Um, and so all of that really started very, very young for me. And I, you know, have the vocabulary to discuss it now, but that's after having completed a doctorate degree. I think, right, as, right. you know, <laughs> as a seventh grader, I just was like,
0: well, I'll be damned, right? I mean, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> Here, and here's the thing that hits me. I've, you know, so I've done some DEI work, been in some training, seen some, but I was in a great great training with the son of CT Vivian who for those who understand the civil rights movement and and what um and he recently just passed he actually passed i think the same day or day before as John Lewis oh man um, they and they were actually in i know this is like random information but you know in atlanta you know there was an agreement they had his funeral first like they were both side by side their their coffins in the funeral home and and then you know they had his funeral first and then they had John Lewis's because these, these are men who, if you, if you don't know who he is, was, you know, was a a pastor, but just a, one of the greats. Right. But I was in a training with one of his son, with his son. And one of the things that kind of impacted me is that he'd asked this question, you know, it was a mixed race environment. It was really intense training, but he'd asked this question about the story of, How many of you, your family has been here? One generation, two generations, three generations. And he kept going back and back and back. And he, you know, at the end, he said, this is what's always interesting about asking that question. Usually by the end of that question, the only people who have their hands up are those who are particularly Black American, right? Let's not say African-American. Let's say, because I, you know, my family, my family came in the 70s. So (laughs) we're rather modern. Of course. Yeah. but it's almost always, and and it's only at that time for the first time. I think that some people realize in the room how, just how long, if you are a Black American and your your family has been here for a minute, like your family has been here for a long minute. It isn't like oh, like, you just came, right? It is time
1: immemorial, right? It it is right. it is. As old as this country is. Right. And I think that's really difficult um, for many people to imagine, especially, I think, people who consider themselves, you know, blue blood Americans or whatever that means. Right. To believe that the people who've been here the longest, the people who have the longest history of America, the people who have the, I think, and, you know, I, I write about this in my book, like the longest claim, frankly, to this country, right, are black, and not that they're frankly that's not even true, right? They're native, but we could go we could go on, right? Um, and but in representation, and in a groundswell of people of color in a room like the one you'd be in, it would be rare to find, you know, an indigenous American. It would be extremely difficult to do that for historical reasons, right? Um, and so that leaves us, and and I think it is often at that point in my experience as a young person that everybody goes, yeah, okay. So let's move on. Right. Um, Because nobody (laughs) wants to tackle the history of slavery today. Nobody wants to tackle the notion that Those realities for so many generations could be very present Mm -hmm. right now, right? That, you know, if we've been Mm -hmm. dealing with people today who have a history of Mm -hmm. hundreds of years of oppression in their family that they can identify, what are we doing about that now, right? It's like, right. oh, that's too big. It's too it's bigger than me. And and then you get into the conversation, well, I just got here, right? My family just got here. My family's not part of that, <laughs> right. right? So it just becomes a very divisive conversation. But what it does for the person who identifies that way is, is extremely minimizing. It's extremely isolating. Um, I think, you know, to get into that conversation is hurtful. I will say, I think it's extremely hurtful when that point realization comes about and there's no recognition or, um, do care for the gravitas of what that is and what that means. Right. And, um, I think we see that in other cultures, we can see that in other places and part of, again, my research wherever I go is to look for that same dynamic. It doesn't have to be in black skin. Mm. Often it's not. Um, in many places, black people are the new immigrants. So that's not the that's right, not right. the narrative. Um, but I'm always looking for who, you know, who is the origin of this place, right? Who who could identify with that today? And how do they talk about it? How do they talk about themselves? How do they believe they get represented either politically or socially? Um, How do they get included? How do they get excluded? And, you know, and also who is part of, let's say, a larger phenotype that makes them disappear, right? So who is part of that? (laughs) Yeah, you know, who's part of that larger group that everybody's going, oh, they're all the same, right? Um, and, And what is their experience that's differentiated from this sort of you know, larger, older, more established, perhaps, group in the history of that country? And then what does that mean for the, the national narrative, right? What? How do these different narratives contend with what people say is the story of a country?
0: You know, that's wild. You were talking, and it reminded me of a time I went to, um, I just had this conversation with someone, I went to Argentina. And I was in Argentina and I was, you know, looking like me. <laughs> I'm traveling. Everybody knows yeah, I'm Mexican. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know. And and um Argentina was actually very interesting. Like the only folks who really stared, I think, were other South Americans and some of them just thought I was Colombian. So they were just trying to figure oh, out. Yeah. You know. Which <laughs> oh, made, the guessing games and then
1: the so where are you from it's a, game. It's, a, it's, a, it's gonna be offensive no matter what you do. The I, answer's I,
0: always bad. Always bad. Never play that I game. Had, well, <laughs> the, and the answer's always wrong. But and actually it wasn't too bad. When I the same trip I went to Uruguay and they were like Brazilian
1: I was like you know what I can roll with you you right yeah
0: we're getting we're getting there but I I just remember having a conversation with someone and uh, he was Argentinian and he was like you know the way he learned a lot about and it was interesting his introduction to sort of the racial history in the states was through listening to music yeah jazz right and the blues oh wow which I thought is is a that, right. And I was like, you could tell he's kind of a very introspective person. Hmm. And I thought, that's a very fascinating way to go through the arts. And I thought, you're not wrong. <laughs> the more I think about it, like, how much could be told through, you know, jazz and, and, and some of the greats. But then we just got into an interesting conversation even about, and not to make this a whole side conversation. Oh, no, I'm here for it. A little bit About, <laughs> about, about Argentinians history, because. Oh, they'll like, tell like, you there's the no black, black people. That's what I was gonna say. You are aware they're Afro-Argentinians here. <laughs> they and everyone's like, no, I'm like, oh, but they are if we run that ancestry, some of y'all might be shocked. <laughs> you might be shocked. Guy.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. If you know anything about slavery in South America, um, you'll you'll know it's a really complex reality because they yeah. um they ended, you know, slavery before they actually ended slavery, right? So they ended right. the import. <laughs> of slaves um and then and then just sold all their slaves internally throughout south america um at extremely high prices uh and and in many ways argentina you know for whatever has that has that history right they they in theory quote got rid of their slaves right um and and many other countries um had tried, right? I mean, they imported, they did as much as they could to import white folk. They <laughs> right. were like, can we, anybody, Italy, <laughs> right. Germany, can y'all come here? Right. Um, we need a white in this place, right? They believed in eugenics. Right. And so they right. wanted that. And not to say that there aren't black Ag- Argentinians because of course there are, but the Iberian yes. way of colonization is through um, miscegenation, right? So you actually control mm-hmm. people by mm-hmm. inter- mixing and intermarrying and you, you know, you try to find a way to control the population by whitening them, but that doesn't mean you erase African ancestry of any kind. It's still there. Um, But in large numbers, they did, you know, they did sell as many of the black slaves as they could to other countries and they have, you know, ended up in other places and perhaps have Argentinian origins. But it is always fascinating to me when people tell me that there are no black people in a country because I'm like, you're lying. I I, I yeah, can't there's literally <laughs> like where right. I, I, I can find them, right? Like like just put me right. just put me in the middle of your capital. I will I will phone in my black beacon and I will find these I will find these folks. because They're there. It's like we're always there. There's no place we're not right. Um, it's always interesting to see people who are shocked by, you know, by the presence of Black <laughs> right. people in a country. Oh, my gosh. How did you get here? Like the same plane <laughs> that the, the other here Americans, here. Americans and Europeans get. <laughs> it's the same thing. I'm so confused. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel you. It's been interesting. Um traveling around the world, particularly yeah. South America, because I don't America. think they even know their own history, right? I think in many places, but I, think I think that's, that's a good, good yeah, part of that's it. Not, yeah. That's not what they hear. They go from, you know, co- colonization to independence and then everything else is kind of a blur until now. You right. know? So, so <laughs> Black histories are not common.
0: Yeah. I think that's a Great segue uh into our break, because on the other side of this, I want to talk about then your own personal global movement and sort of the things that you've seen. Because if you didn't know, I don't even know. if I remember if I said the beginning. She's in Peru right now. So so uh, we got to talk about how how she's gotten there and and what she's seen. So we'll be back after the break. You were listening in in the first half, which obviously because you, you made it to the second half, we talked a lot about migration. We talked a lot about her experiences with her research and even her childhood. And I mentioned that she is in Peru right now. And so, you know, I probably dropped this in the intro, but she is a foreign service officer. And so I know what that means, a.k.a. (laughs) diplomats, but I'm going to I'm going to let the diplomat for the folks who who have limited interactions, which actually for most Americans, to be very fair, you know, unless they travel abroad and maybe there's a situation where they need to interact with their U.S. State Department, you know, in the Foreign Service uh, personnel, they don't really think about kind of the work you do. So can you tell a little bit about just what that means to be in the U.S. Foreign Service?
1: Sure. I mean, we represent Americans abroad, right? So we we protect and serve Americans abroad. And then we also are the foreign policy arm of you know, the U.S. Mm-hmm. government. So when we're thinking about all the different types of uh, interaction that we have with other countries and other heads of state, usually it's someone in a role like mine who is Physically doing mm-hmm. that work, right, in that other country. So uh, we have embassies and consulates all over the world, and people like me, uh, foreign service officers or diplomats, um, we move around all the time. So it's a little bit like the military. I think most people understand the military, right. they don't necessarily right. understand the other services, but similar to the military we have assignments, we go for two or three years, maybe four years, depending on where you're going to go. Um, and then you keep rotating and you kind of make your way around the world or a career or lifetime, um, in that way. And I, um, I started pretty young. I started, As a Pickering Mm -hmm. fellow. So if anybody's interested in joining the foreign service, um, there are a number of fellowships and one of them is the Pickering fellowship. There's also a Rangel fellowship. These are really geared towards diversity and inclusion and representation from underrepresented people. And, um, I joined uh, almost you know right out of graduate school, and so I've lived in a number of different places, and I've kind of grown up as an adult here, right? I've, I've grown my family um, in this way, which is you know how I have you know third culture kids, where I've got you know my husband is not um, is not African American; he's originally from Mozambique, so we have you know multiple languages in our house, and now we're raising black children of you know mixed black heritages. In a place that's not where either of us is from, and so you know it's a constant. You know, we were talking identities, right? It's a constant yeah. conversation about you know, well, how are we raising them, and what are we teaching them, and what do they need to know, mm-hmm. and um, and it's very interesting. It's been a it's been a journey. I have a four year old and a two year old, and I got married. Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose count now. I guess eight years ago, (laughs) uh, eight years ago. Um, So, yeah, over a very long, you know, almost. 13-year career, I've, I've actually grown my family um, and then in yeah. parallel have done all of my research as well. So every time I, I went to a different country, I kind of picked up a different degree and added a family
0: member. And and now here we are. <laughs> here, here we are. are. Here. Oh my gosh. I mean, and and I think you've given so much to unpack. And so one thing I, I was just, and I, I thank you for that description, especially about what you do is I think everything that people know about diplomats, they see from movies. Oh, of course. <laughs> and it's like you all come in to save the day when somebody is stuck in a place. <laughs> And you're shaking your head, and I know you don't. Yeah.
1: yeah, There's so many misconceptions. I mean, I think I get people. My family, they're like, "Oh my God, are you like 007? Do you know how to like tumble?" I'm like, yes. I did. Nobody said nobody said I worked for Mi six, right? That's not what this is. Um, no, but you're right. Most people only have an interaction when you know they have they need a passport or um, there's an issue when they're abroad. So yeah, most po- people don't see the whole breadth of all of our work. But yeah, you know, we're American citizens representing America abroad, and it's a really interesting mm-hmm. career, really engaging. Uh, but we say it's not it's not a career, it's a lifestyle. And yeah. I think that's a huge part of my, you know, my own migration experience, right? Because people will be like, oh yeah. my gosh, well, how did you spend this many years in this place? It's like, oh, because I was, I was working. That's how I can do a degree, right? Because I'm going to yeah. be there yeah. long enough, um, which is not necessarily the same experience because I know there's a lot of folks who are doing, you know, sort of the you know, it's like the black travel movement now where people are, yeah. you know, yeah. hopping for a weekend or doing like shorter trips. And um, and I don't really have that experience. You know, I often tell people, you know, I don't I don't know how to tell you what to do for a vacation. I'm, I'm right. like I am legitimately out of my so- depth. Yeah. Out of my depth on that type of travel because I just haven't done it. Um, that long, but uh, for the most part, you know, living abroad and moving and moving your family and trying to set up a life and building a new community for yourself and a new country, I do that often, which is often something people are very intimidated by and are like, oh my god, how do you do that? And once you get there, don't you yeah. just want to stay? And you want to move again? And what about your kids? And you know, how do yeah. they? You know, how do they interact? And how do they feel? Um, so yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Um, unpack you know, as a, as a Black person who's an expat, who's constantly sort of moving and not affixed in one place, right? Because there's also expats who move and, you know, you move to Paris and like Paris is it, right? You know, you're just there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very unique experience, very similar to the military.
0: Yeah. Some of my favorite conversations with families and folks who are in relationships and with children really is that cross-cultural piece, right? So we spent a lot of time in the beginning of this really talking about you know, the different narratives and kind of the different streams and sort of black stories. And so, you know, you are a black woman, you are a black American woman, you present as a black American woman and you, your, your husband, your partner is from Southern Africa. Right. And I, I always like to put this out there because people are always interested, like how, I am sure, and this is with any two people you put in a relationship, maybe there are cultural conversations or narratives and, and whatnot. And then you're also a diplomat. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that's moving. So what did that, what did that look like for you guys? Even before you had kids in terms of, okay, we've got this relationship and I'm, I'm assuming, and given that you just said what you said, you probably met him on a posting or met him doing your research in a, a location like, what did that look like knowing full well that also you're going to leave in a couple of years? Yeah, totally. Um, so we met in India
1: and he was there studying while I was there working. So uh, similarly, he wasn't planning to stay in India either. Right. So, um, yeah. I think this would be different if I had met him, you know, perhaps in his home country and yes. then, and then I wanted to leave and he's like, no. Um, but we had both been yeah. travelers at that point And, Uh, met through a number of mutual friends, all of which, it's so funny, we just had a a Zoom meetup with our friends from India over the weekend. And everybody's from a different country and in a different country. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, the person who introduced us is from the Congo. Um, Some of our really great friends are from like France in Germany and they live in Ethiopia now. Um, You know, there's some parts of the world where the international community is extremely diverse and really like tight knit even though they're diverse, right? If that makes any sense. Um, yeah, and absolutely. and uh, New Delhi is one of those places where foreigners just like flock to each other and it's like lifelong friendships. And so uh, he came out of that sort of friendship group and he was really excited about it. I think, you know... I joined the foreign service super young. And so I have always had this like interest in like, what would life be like if I didn't do it? Right. So like, I I think I might've been tempted even to be like, well, I could take a year off. Let's see how it goes. Um, He's like, no, I love this traveling thing. Where are we going next? Um, And so I think we have that same zest for travel and we don't, even now we've talked about, you know, the fact that we have kids, like would we, would we want to live in America for a very long time? Like, would we want to, you know, quote unquote settle in America, which is, weird to say but also weird to think about and we're both like ugh no um you know like we want to <laughs> we want to keep traveling and like even if we were in the states you know maybe we'd spend a couple months but then we'd be snowbirds and so anyway we have that same um, interest mm. in travel so nobody was pulling the other person along mm. or convincing them you know oh you should want to do this i would say what ended up happening I say it was good for him, uh, was was my, uh, after I left India, my next role was in Mozambique. So um, a number of opportunities had come up that had, hadn't panned out and, and then Mozambique came up. And so we ended up going back to his home country, which is interesting because as our families developed. It's, it was so funny. I mean, we had so many issues with the family stuff uh, when we decided to, you know, oh, we're together and we're, you know, come, going back to speak because, you know, most of his family expected that he was coming. I was coming to follow him, right? So they thought, like, he, you know, he's got his fiance and they're going to come to week and they're going to be here and they're going to like make a life here. And you know, most of them didn't even know that I had a job, much less where I worked. And um, and it was like, you know, slowly, slowly, I was like, I'm not here for him like if anything he came for me because he was actually planning to do some scholarships in europe um after his, mm. his undergrad and decided you know oh, I'll just come back to be with you um and so you know very interesting conversations with his family uh about the yeah. fact that I'm not at everything and I'm not at all the things grandma wants me to be at and I'm not you know learning how the Make the recipes in the back, um, yeah. and and I would say culturally speaking, that was a really huge barrier for us at the beginning because I think he had left uh, Mozambique really young, uh, not really young, but you know by the time I met him, he would have been out for about four years. And he, you know the way he remembered his family as being like open, and they're going to love you. And I got there, and they were like, "Okay, she's black, but she's not Mozambican. What do we do right. with her?" Right? They have come to love me. I, I will say that. But I think there was an expectation that I would, you know, know all the same things that a Mozambican girl would know about, I mean, there's ceremonies, there's things you got to do. There's, there's like rites and just so many scripts to what you're supposed to, how a woman entering uh, a family, an African family is supposed to behave. And I, number one, didn't care to even know them. And number two, wasn't going to be around to do it because I had a whole full-time job and was doing a PhD and wasn't having it. And, you know, there were times when I said to him, I think this would be easier if I were white. I think your family would process that I'm not Mozambican and I don't get what they're trying to accomplish and that I um, am trying my level best to be accommodating and respectful, but I'm not trying to assimilate. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I think they would understand that. If I wasn't also mm-hmm. black, and he's like, "Yeah, you're probably right." Um, and you know, over time, he did a lot of buffering for me. You know, I will, I will definitely say that, like, he didn't put me in positions where I would feel uncomfortable. You know, if I was like, "I don't want to do that," I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I just don't want to do that. I want to be part of that. That's not what I want to do. He was like, "Oh yeah, don't do it." Right? I mean, he he was equally as brazen. I think about being protective of me and that was that made our lives very easy in, in that regard. And then eventually, you know, they got to know me. I got to know them and it was a better um relationship. And then as we moved on, you know, we've moved to different places. We lived in Angola, we've lived in South Africa, we've you know, now we're in Peru. Um now we're the unit, right? It's just it's the two of us and our two littles. So we don't have the family. And even that I'm like, I kind of I kind of miss arguing with your aunts. <laughs> they would have taken the babies you know at least I could be like argue with me whatever but take this child out of my hand so we miss that community
0: but you know what you you said something that I um interestingly enough had a conversation with a friend earlier maybe earlier last week and and it's that part where you said about you both being black Mm -hmm. right And I, you know, I had a conversation about sort of when you when you date cross-culturally, interracially or whatnot, that often because you already there's a visible we're probably starting at different places. Some conversations happen early, like there aren't certain assumptions made. Well, there are assumptions made, but there are not certain assumptions made about what, you know, culturally, whatever but it's interesting. I, and in that case, we were talking about if you were black American and black American, right. And you and I both know being a black American from Newark and being a black American from Mississippi, that's still two cultures that are very different. Right. right? But, but because we are of the same race, sometimes we don't have those conversations and, and those, those getting, doing the work because we assume you're black, I'm black. That's what it is. And Right. And so when you were talking about, you know, with your with your fan- your in-laws and whatnot, I was just thinking to myself, I think about it so much when we're from the same country, it didn't even occur to me that you could still have a layer of that. Even and and obviously they know you're not mo- because it was very clear you're not oh, no. But, but it's funny they still
1: many of them are like she doesn't speak Portuguese. I've been speaking Portuguese for 15 years, I, but but you know like I don't speak it with the same accent, right? And half the time I'm just like I'm right. just in the corner. I'm just you know I'm just. I'm the new. Wife. I'm gonna sit in the corner. I'm not gonna talk. I'm not gonna say anything. Everything I say is gonna get ripped apart, right? Like I'm just gonna be quiet. I just tell everybody I don't. I don't speak. They literally, I, literally, there are people who are like, oh, she Lisa, doesn't you don't speak Portuguese. She is. She, is, she has no idea what we're saying.
0: <laughs> and you're like, what you just said was da-da-da-da. no, <laughs> no. I listen. I just
1: let it in one ear. I let it out the other ear. Um, You know, it's it's okay. I, I think I've learned again when you're in constant adaptation like I am you pick your battles right like they're not trying to hurt me they just you know they think that there is a certain script to the way that women coming into a family would show deference and would behave I don't know that script you know I I I and I'm still here, so we're just gonna keep living with each other. <laughs> um, but it's it, it, but interesting. It's very interesting. I think I think you what you bring up is a really interesting point. You know, like I, I tell people, you know, yeah, our kids are black mixed with black, right? Um, and that means they've got. They've got two passports. My daughter was born in another country where she could be another citizen if she wants to and chooses to. Um, like there's so many layers of culture. And and I think what it's different about my relationship, I will say, bringing it back, is we fight for each other's cultures. I think um, he there's times when I'm like, I'm not teaching them that. Right. Like, you know, we're not going to go into, you know, whatever, you know, crump music. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah. We're not going to do, we're not going to do that. And he's like, Oh no, these kids are African-American. Okay. When they go to Atlanta, they need to know all the songs. They need to eat grits. Okay. Like that's what we're doing. Okay. You're not going to hide this from them. You know, like if he, he, He loves American culture. He also grew up learning English through music, mainly through rap music and sort of R&B and and pop music, like the Michael Jackson fan. Most people who meet him think that he's spent time in America before meeting me and he never had. Um, But that's also true Mm -hmm. for many people in Southern Africa, like because, you know. South Africa is a huge Anglophone giant. You know, much of what they have imported about English is actually from the United States. Um, United Black States. identities are mm-hmm. really huge there. And so, like, he'd been picking up and drinking from the well of African American history for a long time. And he loves African American culture. And then, after having lived in Mozambique, um, again, as a scholar, I had thought Mozambique was really cool. But then, actually, going there and spending time there, I'm like, Mozambique is really cool. So, I think yeah. what's different yeah. about us is we, we always fight for each other, each other's culture, right? Like, I'll be like, "Hey, you know, with our daughter, you know, she should be wearing capulanas, which is like a like the the traditional fabric." And my husband's like she doesn't need that. I was like, yes, she does. Because when she goes back to, you know, see your grandma, see your mom, like she needs to know how to wrap it. Like we're not going to have these people saying that I, this American girl took our son (laughs) and like now the girl, their kids don't even know how to wrap a couple on it. Right. Um, You know, that's not happening. So anyway, we really appreciate each other's culture. I think we try to make it really integrated. We don't have the kids see you know, oh, mommy's doing the American thing and daddy's doing the Mozambican thing. Like they see us just doing sort of this melange of cultures. And like, we we definitely work at it. Like my son is doing preschool online um, with the teacher who lives in Portugal because we want him to have a really strong command of Portuguese. Like we're like, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. want him going back to Mozambique where he has citizenship and feeling like he can't talk to people who are in his grandmother's you know plot of land like he needs to be able to converse like that is his culture that is his history that is his heritage equally as it is with mine and just because my you know my job sort of allows me to keep him in an English bubble that doesn't mean that that's true for who he is and who he should be in the world so um we we do the work you know we do that we do the work
0: you know and and like you're totally right i I love the fact that you said there's an intentionality in what you're trying to do and 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 also the fact that you mentioned where your expat migration story is and i've the more I've done this i I've learned to not take for granted that everybody knows that there're different types of expats and and that affords different opportunities depending on where where you are um but with that being said i you know especially, and you touched on this, but especially the fact that you are raising Black children. And and this is always an interesting conversation I have with most of my, I mean, this is most of the ex, uh, expats who come on here or folks who have a story is what it means, particularly for you as a Black American, raising Black, mixed, mixed Black cultural children, and and what does it mean to prepare that? And your kids are little, so you've got some time. So I've had this conversation more with folks with middle school and, and high schoolers for the possibility or the potential of them coming to, and I can't say returning because they've never really lived here, of coming and, and living in the U.S. knowing, you know, you know your upbringing and you as a scholar know the history and the layers to it. What does that look like for you for even preparing them for just, this is what it means to be black in the States. <laughs> Listen, there's no book for that.
1: Um, right, right. I, you know, I think frankly, again, you're right. My children are really small. So at this point, I think that really begins with thinking about what my community would be, right? What what would my Black parenting community be? Um, we've actually recently recently purchased a house, um, right outside of D.C. because that's typically where people go back to when you go back to the states um, in my career, yeah. and um, and we were very intentional. Again, very intentional. I was like, okay, there's a homeschool collective down the street. You know, the school looks like it's about this many, you know, people of color versus, you know, Mm -hmm. white or black or Asian or whatever. Um, You know, we've got these number of options like this neighborhood looks like this. I mean, it was very like granted. I think those same things benefit me. Right. Those same things make my parenting journey easier because I'm not going to have to sit here and go, well, you're the only black kid in the room. Right. You know, so it's as much to their benefit as it is to mine. And so I think right now again i'm in i'm interested in com- cultivating a community where parenting can happen that we all collectively share that burden of you know trying to prepare our children and protect our children in mm-hmm. in a space, right? Um, and I looked for that mm-hmm. everywhere. I don't look that for that only in the United States, but I look for that everywhere I go. Like, you know, I'm like, hey, anybody else got a brown kid who needs to have their hair braided? Like, where are you? Where are you? Can we can we do a collective with the with the hair braiding person? So we do yes. this on the same Sunday. Um, so I'm always looking for that community. I think it'll be difficult, you know. Like my husband and I have had many conversations about where we would raise our children and, and if we felt. Um, unsafe or unhappy with their experience in the United States, where would we go and how would that look? I think we always, again, the type of expats we are, right? We always have an, we always have an alternative, right? right. Nobody's right. stuck. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize about particularly Black migration in, in the U.S. and other places, right? There's a scholar, her name is Ong, and she basically says, you know, we have flexible citizenship. And she usually uses this, In regards to to Asian citizenships, because many people who are of a certain class and category will have multiple citizenships that they use to get into and to, you know, manage certain things, right? You have your... Banking in one country, you got your business in another country. Your kids are going to school in another place, and you kind of collect residencies and citizenships in a way that allows you to facilitate this sort of transnational experience because that's the best way for you, right? That's, I mean, you kind of your your citizenship is a currency, and so I think again we have to be realistic, right? We've we've often talked like, would we send will we go to Mozambique for a time if we didn't feel comfortable? You know, would we go to again? My daughter in theory could be South African, right? Um, like if she wants to do that, would we be willing to go to South Africa for a time? Because that feels like the best place. I think we talked more about that than we've talked about how we would confront and stay in the United States if we felt like mm-hmm, it wasn't working for us. Um, but I, I do think it's a great question. And I think it's a, it's a valid question. We just haven't had to tackle it yet. I think we're trying to put yet. ourselves in the best possible position, to be in the U.S. and not to have those types of experiences, but I'm sure that they're, they're going to happen. No, they're coming. They're going to happen. And again, I just hope to be in, in the right community that if I don't have the right answer or I feel ill-equipped or underprepared or stripped of my agency, that there are other people in our space who are equally as protective and loving of my kids that I would have the support that I needed to, you know, to defend and protect them and to, you know, really fight for what they deserve in, in that equal space. So that's where I get, I think we've landed thus far, but check in with me again in like five years, maybe I'll have a whole different answer. I'll be like, <laughs> be like we've moved to Thailand. I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't, know. I don't, I don't this, know. This is
0: what we did. I don't know. Yeah. So I You know, and um yeah, it's, it's a, let me tell you as many parents as I've talked to this everybody's answer has been like whether they're two or they're like about to go to college the, the answer's been like yeah we're still working this out yeah <laughs> like we're working we're working now. It it's a it's a question that has no answer
1: right you're you're saying you know how how can i protect my children from possible you know violence right whether that's emotional physical yeah Um, you know, sexual, any of that, right? In a world that I don't control, right? That's what what we're saying, right? Like, how do I put them in the best possible position to defend themselves and to be safe and to make safe choices in knowing that no matter what they do, they could still be victims and they could still be blamed for their Mm -hmm. victimization?
0: How does a parent, right? I mean, there's no good answer for that, right? I mean, there's no good answer. Well, and I think also, and this is me speaking as a, as a, I guess you don't stop being a TCK. <laughs> no. But this not. is me speaking as someone who is a TCK, is that what's very interesting for me is that, and we don't know what your children might decide to do. They may decide to go to if they want to go to uni, they may go in Europe, they may go in Canada, sure. they may go somewhere else, sure. right? They may stay in on the continent. But like, I just remember, oh crap, I don't really know the mores when I got here for college because also. You know, we're talking about the greater country, but even within different Black communities, because once again, they're Black mixed with Black. But that Black mixed with Black isn't a Black that grew up here. (laughs) And to be honest with you, you know, I think one of the things that I really tackle in
1: a lot of my work is you don't have to fit in. Right. Right, You don't have to. I think, you know, we do, especially in the Black community, we do, I think, overvalue Fitting in sometimes, right? It's like, well, you have to have already known the secret handshake um, to come up in here, right? Which is, which is laughable, in fact, because even the idea of like, you know, African migrants having been part of, you know, Black American history, African American history, right? Like, we got Mark, you know, we've got Marcus Garvey, we've got people yeah. coming, you know, Langston Hughes spent a good chunk of his. Uh, adult you know young adulthood in mexico because his dad moved to mexico and so like he spoke spanish fluently and lived there right like there's so many stories of like black people in motion who like fit in or didn't fit in in their day but are like epic and amazing and like you don't have to right this whole like idea that you must assimilate to some like overbearing overarching culture that frankly none of us none of us are right that prototype right, right. of like you have to be the black that looks like this kind of black and does this kind of black i don't even know who that is right i mean i've never met right. that person um so constantly pegging ourselves to our safety and our emotional well-being and our uh you know our psychological inclusion to a fiction it's problematic, right? It's extremely problematic, yeah. and I think I don't. I don't want my kids to to again to feel like there's some part of American history they missed, but I also, I yeah. mean, yeah. maybe. Well, I will say. Uh, I don't, I don't value that. Right. I, I don't value that proposition. I would say to them, well, there's a lot of things everybody else in that room missed about what you know. Right. So like the, the idea here is just not to feel inferior because of whatever your differences are. Right. You're different everybody's gonna be different. They different, you different, everybody different. Okay. Yeah. Let's just be different. Um, but there's no value judgment on different, right? There's no value judgment on that. Right. Um, and if you feel like you're in a space where you're unsafe or you're not valued because of your difference, then let's talk about that. Cause, cause there are other spaces you can be in and you don't have to be the educator in every space that you're in. But if you feel like, you know, oh, it's just, it's a little uncomfortable. Cause I don't know all the things that's like, yeah, that's college. Right. I mean, that's, that's life. But I mean, I think one of the things that you and I have been talking about before was sort of like, you know, what are we doing? What am I doing to make them feel seen and heard? And I think that's part of why I even launched into this whole bilingual book thing. Because I, you know, I kept looking for books with Black kids that spoke <laughs> languages. I have traveled, I mean, I can't even tell you how many countries I've, I've visited, lived in, because I love books. So I'm always in a bookstore, right? So I'm in everybody's bookstore. There just are none, right? There just are literally no books. You might have like a normal mainstream, maybe American book that's been translated. And of course, there's a Black character. But if there's a Black boy, there's probably not a Black girl. Or if there's a Black girl, there's probably not a Black boy. Um, And then those languages, those books tend to be 100% in that language, right? So it's not facilitating you know, third country kids learning because their parents can't read this to them in their native language and understand what it is. So, every you know, everybody's just reading, huddling over it, mispronouncing everything. And then the stories that I found that were all about Black people or Black kids were really tied to the national history of that country, right? So it's, you know, it's a Martin Luther King book, or it's, a you know, in Mozambique, it's going to be Samora Michelle or Josina Michelle. It's very tied to that national history. And I was just like, I just, I just want, you know, good night moon, right? I just, <laughs> right? I just want that. You know, my kids are too young to read that. You know, Arch- the national Arch- history of the archetype Arch- of the nation, right? They, they're. <laughs> we just need a rhyming book that is easy for them to see that has black and brown kids in it that I can read, their dad can read, they can read, and it all sounds easy. Right. I just want easy. Like, you know, I feel like black experiences around the world are just always so hard. Right. I'm like, no, no, what? I'm just easy. Um, <laughs> anywho. So I, I was like, I think I'm just going to write this. My husband's like, yeah, just write it. Like you've been talking about, you've been searching bookstores for three years, just write it. And though, here we are.
0: And there's a handful of you, and I feel like every time I, I have black children's books from an international perspective. I think I've been doing this for like six years. I think there's at least four of y'all who are just like I couldn't find something, and so I think- so I made it. So if there's an, if there's anybody else who's made it who's made a book, <laughs>
2: holler at me. We need holler to have a, person a person.
1: we need to have a a book exchange with some
0: brown characters and some t- languages. You know what? And I think I'm going to put it on the website because you're talking, I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Which is why when I, when, you know, when you and I connected and I saw you did black history bookshelf, mm-hmm. I just thought this was so brilliant. Cause I think this ties everything we've been talking about today in terms of identity, reading, understanding whatever. stories or whatever, that you've created a platform. And I know it's a labor of love and I know it's labor. It is a labor <laughs> of love. You're totally right. But, but, you know, going on there. And I love the fact that you broke up books by region mm-hmm. and that someone could go on and, and find stories of, of, you know, at least we're now talking at least mostly adult yes, books, yeah, right? but yeah, find stories yes. and and experiences and from across the world. And so I imagine with you and me kind of circling similar spaces that, people were probably asking you questions or they just wanted resources and where they could go. And there's, it's hard to find that curated list, to be honest. Yes. So Black History Bookshelf started
1: because, again, I'm a scholar, right? I, I'm in everybody's bookshelf, yeah. bookstores. I'm in everybody's <laughs> library. I've read books. Nobody... Has ever heard even exist right, um, right. about places nobody has even seen on a map. You know, I, I tell people, like for my birthday a couple years ago, I went to Sao Tome and people were like, Where is mm-hmm. Sao Tome? And I was like, Right? Right? It's a, you know, it's a Portuguese ex Portuguese colony off the coast of, yeah, <laughs> so, right? Yeah. So I have just had it, a really rich, literary experience and buy books. And actually, like, I love sign books. I'm just, I just love books. And um yeah. and so people often come to me about, you know, their travel experiences and the things that they want to do and where they want to go. And again, my, my circle is predominantly African-American. And so they're very curious about how they will be received when they get to places. And they want to know, like, the what is the Black history so that they don't come there and trample on it mm-hmm. in some way. And so I was like, you know, let me, let me put this out in a place where anybody could find it and so black history bookshelf.com is um, is really it is a labor of love because we don't we don't really advertise much and we don't you know try to monetize um, I've been working so much on uh, my book with like Xavier the superhero that I just really haven't focused on trying to monetize that site but it is rich and it includes a breakdown of um, books about Black histories. So we're pretty much all nonfiction. There's one book. There's a Wolusoyinka book, which is a play that we've included because it is like so epic. If you're thinking about Nigeria and you know what it means to be in West Africa at that time, um, but it's all of these nonfiction books about the history of Black people in different places around the world. And it's, you know, their internal histories, their migratory histories, their sub histories, you know, biographies of people of importance. Um, And the book in the, the, you know, we break down different regions, right? So we've got, you know, Caribbean, we've got, you know, Europe, we've got US. um, And then we also break it down by language. So if you are looking to, you know, understand portuguese histories or spanish histories um francophone is the thinnest so don't go on there now and and then you know ping me on instagram like oh my gosh you don't have these books in french um french french is not my my mother language or even my second or third so um french is the thinnest but we do have a lot of books in um, spanish and portuguese and we do have children's books as well um but they're all like i said they're all um you know, nonfiction. And it's just about the stories of different people. And, you know, again, a lot of these books are really hard to find. So if you actually go on there and you're like, I can't find this book, you can always message me. I can tell you where I found it. Um, But a lot of times they're really difficult, you know, distribution. Like for example, I was looking for some books in Portuguese um, about Brazil and Portugal and uh, their website is for anybody who's looking um, is pt. So W-O-O-K dot P-T. If Mm -hmm. you're looking for books from Portugal, Uh, but they don't ship to the the United States. So if you find it, you're kind of like, oh, I hope they've got, you know, a a Kindle version or something like that, because it's difficult to find. So I've kind of tracked down the books that are in my bookshelf that I think are really valuable. And I've you know done book reviews and then provided links where people can buy them. But then we also have a bookshop.org site for Black History Bookshelf, where we have um, a wider array of books that I would recommend for different themes, like, you know, Afro-Latinx heritage or Afro-Indigenous heritage. We've got that. And then people help, of course, always reach out about fiction. So on, on bookshop.org, we also have some fiction. It's not our, it's not our like bread and butter, um, but we do have some that we think are really useful and, and fun and engaging um, from global histories, right? Um, so yeah, so that's Black History Bookshelf. It really started off as a way to get people out of my WhatsApp inbox and um, mm-hmm. to get them directly connected with the resources that they you know need and want and seem to appreciate. And we're always looking for you know different types of books to feature. So if you have a book or you know a book, please let me know. One thing that's really a differentiator is that we don't focus on black authors. Um, so a lot of people will come thinking, oh, you're looking for black authors from these places And I'm like, no. We're looking for Black histories from these places. And often they're not written by Black people, um, but they're really good histories. And they really dig into, you know, the narratives of Black folk in different places. So that's Black History Bookshelf. But then that's where I kind of discovered the problem of not finding children's books. <laughs> not finding enough children's books. And, and then went off and wrote uh,
0: Xavier. Well, I think you've taken us full circle. We've been around the world. Yeah. We have. It's been a wonderful conversation. We kind of stayed south, but we went around. The, we went around the world. Oh my gosh! Thank you for coming. Thank you on. For Like I've been lovely. I I, I I feel like you dropped some history lessons, some identity lessons, some parenting lessons all throughout this. I tr- I try to be a giver, you know. No, you. I know, and you gave, and you gave, <laughs> and we will say you gave. You know, with every guest that we have come on, I make sure that we have your contact information, sure. like to your sites in our short, in our, um, show notes. And so if you're looking for, especially as Na- Naisa was referring to the Black History, um, bookshelf, if you're also refer, uh, want to get contacted through her website, we're going to have that information in the show notes. We're going to have it on our website. We're going to have it on our YouTube page because as those of you who do follow, we do, put this information and we put the episodes up on YouTube. And so you can find her and reach out to her as busy as she is. I will answer. I will answer. (laughs) Maybe at odd times of night, but I will answer. (laughs) (laughs) Because as you heard, she has a four-year-old and a two-year-old at a very busy job. So (laughs) so be patient is what I always say. But thank you again for coming on. No
1: problem. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be connected with your audience. And uh, I appreciate your
0: time. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com.